Welcome to the Lucky Let Court Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I am your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you on Monday, August 17th as we roll on towards the U.S. Open. We have a special guest today and a special topic. We are celebrating the 30-year anniversary of Pete Sampras's first U.S. Open title. And who better to do that with than the venerable Tennis Hall of Famer Steve Flink, who has just released a book about Sampras called Greatness Revisited. It'll be available September 1st. You can get it on Amazon, and I've already read my advanced copy, and I will say you should get it on Amazon. It is a great journey through the brilliant career of one of the greatest tennis players of all time, Pete Sampras. So thrilled to speak with Steve Flink in part one of our two-part series about the book. We cover Pete Sampras's formative years all the way up through about 1994, so we cut it nicely in half. There's a lot of great conversation in here. Uh, Steve is the perfect man for the job. He's been a full-time tennis journalist since 1974. He followed Pete Sampras's career closely, um, and I think in a lot of ways he really wanted to write this book for a long time, so it's great that he sat down and got it done, and we can celebrate with Steve and with Pete Sampras on the 30-year anniversary of Sampras becoming the youngest men's singles champion in U.S. Open history. So, of course, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the time that Pete switched to the one-handed backhand from the two-hander. We'll talk about the many interviews that Steve conducted with Pete's rivals, such as Michael Chang, Jim Courier, Yvonne Lendl, John McEnroe, so many others. So sit tight, um, listen up, and learn as much as you can about one of the great legends of the game from one of the legend journalists of the game. Let's get right to that interview with Steve Flink, and we'll see you guys on the other side. Steve, big pleasure as always to speak with you, maybe a little bigger pleasure than usual because your book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited, is just about to come out. It's very exciting. How are you today? I'm good, Chris. I'm excited about the book coming out shortly, and it was it was a real pleasure putting it all together. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've been digging in for the last couple of weeks, and I've just found that I've learned so much about an era that, frankly, I, I wasn't a part of in, in person. And it's it's been so great to hear and read all these stories uh, with with the support cast that you've brought in. There's so many interviews, and that's what I want to ask you about first. Like, well, first, the big picture question. I mean, you've covered tennis going on five decades. You've been everywhere, done everything. Um, so, why do you choose Pete Sampras, and and why do you do it now? Uh, I I just I, as his career was winding down, I I in the back of my mind I always thought I really would love to write a book on this guy. I mean because let's face it, the dynamic personalities like Connors and McEnroe in the previous generation and Agassi and Pete's generation and Boris Becker as well they they got all the headlines that they 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 grabbed the spotlight and they loved it and they almost tried to call attention to themselves. He was just the opposite. I I guess that. Chris, I always felt in the back of my mind, I mean, if if I were to be, if I had ever been in a position to be a great tennis champion, I would have wanted to conduct myself like him. I could have envisioned myself trying to go about it the way he did. Yeah, There was just some connection there I had, and I think I always had a very good rapport with him personally when we did interviews, and I just felt like someday I've got to write a book on this guy. That's really what it came down to. Yeah. You've done a heck of a job. I mean, you've spoken to so many people about about Pete and, of course, extensive interviews with Sampras himself. Can you tell me a little bit about how the process began with your interviews and how they shaped the writing of this book? The interview started I, – I wasn't certain I was going to get to that many people at first, Chris. I, I didn't know. I, I, I wanted to get to a bunch of guys, and the obvious – people being the likes of Courier and Chang. Unfortunately, Agassi politely declined for reasons I'll never understand, feeling he'd said what he had to say in his book, and that was too bad. But all the other major ones I got, and 
but initially I just wanted to, I started in with Pete and then I realized, wait a minute, I've got to get some, uh, let me, and the list just grew. And suddenly we went from Courier to Chang to Rafter to Edberg to Ivanisevic. And yeah. well, you saw all the players that I got, Velander uh, and, uh, you know, it was, it was really a, close to 20 players. And obviously I got to Robert Lansdorp, one of his boyhood coaches. And I spoke to Tom Gullickson, the brother of his, his late coach, Tim Gullickson. And, yep. So and obviously Paul Anacon. So I had the coaching perspective, but I thought the players especially were critical. And they and as I'm sure you noticed reading it, they just were so laudatory about Pete. And I and I and then I was able often to go back to Sampras with things that they had said to get his response to that. Yeah. Uh, so it it was it was that ended up. You never know as you're putting out the request who's going to talk to you and who's not. But I was very pleased in the end that I got as many as I did. And that also included the likes of Yvonne Lendl and John McEnroe. It's amazing. And who would you say surprised you the most or gave you some kind of information that maybe you didn't expect out of all those interviews? I wouldn't say anybody surprised me the most. I'd say that they're just, they just were incredibly thoughtful and I loved what Jim Courier had to say because <clears throat> when he played against Pete, obviously there was a rivalry. That was a very interesting relationship. They were really quite good friends when they were younger and doubles partners. But yes. then, you know, they were one and two in the world, and it wasn't as, as easy to maintain that kind of a friendship. And they both talk, Pete especially, talks about that in the book. But I thought that Jim was very, very thoughtful. I think Chang had some terrific anecdotes, uh, anecdotes and some some nice reflections on what, made Sampras the great champion that he was. I thought I thought they all I don't think there was any one standout but they were they were all terrific including some of the women by the way as I'm sure you saw with Martina Navratilova, Billie Jean King and Tracy Austin plus Chrissy Everett yeah, writing the forward. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, actually, when you speak about Chang, it's like it's interesting to see that he was one of the many mountains that Sampras had to climb, and by by no means was his journey to greatness easy. And 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 Chang was a player that he struggled with and had to have very a couple of huge pivotal moments to get over that hump. I mean, it's not easy, and there's a lot of players out there that, for instance, run into these challenges and can never find ways to overcome them. And I think that was something that's so impressive about Sampras is that whatever challenge it was, whether it be a Goran Ivanisevic-type player where he struggled with initially dealing with getting served off the court, something he'd prefer to do to opponents, or a guy like Chang who made things tricky for him and kind of had that edge over them from childhood, all the challenges that he faced, it seemed like he was able to kind of mow down in the end. Absolutely. And, of course, you, what you're alluding to is what made his era so compelling is that there there were so many different playing styles and you you might be playing Chang one day and and having to grind it out from the baseline and baseline and and attack him whatever you could with the serve and volley and then the next day you're playing Goran Ivanisevic and suddenly the points are are exceedingly short and it, there's it, there's these matches are settled on a razor's edge so it, it, there was a lot of diversity back then, and he had a lot of challenges back then. And you're right, you know, initially Ivanisevic was a big problem for him, as was Chang. And uh, Goran had a nice lead in the early stages of the rivalry and beat Pete in the 92 Wimbledon. Michael won the first five matches and six of the first eight against Pete in the professional ranks, which was sort of a carryover from the junior days. That's why Pete referred to playfully, but somewhat seriously, as the Chang curse, yeah. that he had to get over the Chang curse, because in the juniors, Michael was, you know, all those guys really did better than the juniors because Pete was always thinking of the long run and he was shaping a serve and volley game and a lot of his junior rivals were baseliners. So yes. it took longer for his game to evolve, but he was never that worried about it, nor was his uh, his coach Pete Fisher. I mean, it was always about the big picture and big picture and the long term. Yep. And you segued me perfectly because I do want to start a, and discuss some of the formative years of Pete Sampras, which maybe a lot of the, the readers and listeners don't quite know about. Um, Pete Fisher was very influential in shaping Sampras's career from a very young age, and it's a little bit of an unorthodox style that he had, and it wasn't a typical upbringing for Pete Sampras, but you know a lot better than I do what it was about. So can you give a little bit of the history between Pete Sampras and Pete Fisher? Yeah, Pete Fisher came along, and he actually became quite uh, friendly. He was, he was very close to all of, of Pete Sampras's family, not just Pete himself. But he emerged as sort of the the captain of his coaching ship. Yeah. So he 
he didn't do it all himself. He would farm it out to, to Lansdorp and, and a bunch of others to work on stroke by stroke. But he was the overarching architect. He was the architect, and he had the overarching view. And he instilled in Sampras this sense from early on, you're going to be a great player. You know, you, you're, you're destined for big things. And, and he sort of instilled that in, in Sampras, who was a pretty shy, reserved kid, and uh, it, he, he, Fisher, it was very unorthodox, as Pete Sampras says in the book, very unorthodox situation, but it really worked. And I think because Fisher knew his technical limitations, which is why he assembled all the other coaches, but he knew he could be a masterful motivator, and that's exactly what he was. Of course, one of his biggest contributions, not only Fisher's, but I guess in general, was having Pete switch from the two-hander, which he was really good at, and which a lot of his peers, including Michael Chang, thought was a crazy move, but he, he made him make that move, and that might have something to do with the success that Chang had against Sampras. But talk a little bit about that move, how important it was, how maybe what other people thought of it. I mean, this was really one of the one of, one of the great stories of tennis history right here is, is Sampras switching to that one-hander and I think it was about the age of 14. That's right. That's right. It was at 14, and uh, yeah, that's a pretty difficult age to make that kind of a switch. Your game is, is really taking shape, and you're trying to compete as favorably as you can in the juniors, and that's a, that's a, a, a sweeping change in your game. And as, as Chang said himself, and as, as Pete described that his own backhand, he had a very good two-hander. But the feeling was, from Pete Fisher, you know, no, no Wimbledon champion yeah uh, you're 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 not going to do it with a two-hander you know and and uh Bjorn Borg it, I mean he he felt like you had to be a servant volleyer and Fisher obviously had not yet we hadn't yet seen Bjorn Borg arrive but leave that issue aside his feeling was look if you're going to if you're going to take this if you're going to take your game to the to to the absolute to its ap- absolute outer limits and and fulfill your potential you've got to have a one-hand back end because we have to turn you you have to be a servant volleyer and the two-hander is going to hinder you in that process so uh yeah a lot of people as you just alluded to a lot of people chang and others thought it was a real mistake and other people that sampras encountered at his clubs and were just questioning the move but he realized that fisher had made the case his father agreed with it and he just he went along with it because uh, he, he trusted their judgment he yeah. tried and and of course and, and he believes chang made the point in the book that he believes that Pete could have really done really well with the two-hander and gone to a one-handed slice when he needed it, and maybe he saw him in the Mats Wielander mode, that yep. he could have had that kind of a backhand where he had the flexibility to go to a one-handed slice. But I think Pete Sampras made a more convincing case himself that he couldn't, as an athlete, being the athlete that he was and the kind of player he became, it, it, that it, he wouldn't he wouldn't have won all these majors, you know. Maybe and maybe this could have led to a French Open. We'll never know. Maybe his backcourt game would have been even better. But he he would never have won the seven Wimbledon's or the five U.S. Open in his mind. Yeah. I think he believes he did the right thing, and I do too. But it was interesting speculation. Robert Lansdorf kind of agreed with Chang. He thought that Sampras would have won the French and would have done everything he had done with the two-hander. But I I I go along with the Sampras point of view on this that. Ultimately, that change, which was a very courageous one, was in his best interest, and the results prove it. Yeah, and it, and he took he took some lumps for sure, and he probably took some from Michael Chang directly, who probably targeted that backhand for a while in the junior days. But I mean, he's the youngest U.S. champion in history, so I guess he was able to get his game together at a pretty young age, right? Absolutely, and you know, I think you know, by the by the end of the juniors, I think you know he was he was comfortable with that one hander and. And I, I, I think he could see that that over the long haul things were going to work out for him. And wisely, he just he put the trust in Fisher, and and uh, he just went with it. And I don't think he ever second guessed it. He he left that to the others, and in the end, he just moved on. And although his junior results were never great, that didn't matter to him. He he knew where he was headed, and he knew what he wanted. Mm-hmm. What else can you tell me about those formative years, maybe leading up to? You know his his beginning his beginnings in the pros. He had to make a switch to Florida. Is that correct? Or he decided to make a switch to Florida? Yeah, he did. He did, and that and actually, Courier he he went to the academy for a while. He wasn't really a, a voluntary guy, but he spent right. some time at the academy. And at Courier, that's where he developed his friendship with Courier because Courier was a Floridian, and Pete was coming from California, so 
they developed a nice friendship and career kind of showed him the ropes and helped him make that kind of transition, which was a, which was a substantial one going from California to Florida. And so he established some roots there in Florida and, and that was very important in, in, in his uh, teenage days. And yeah, that was, that was, that was certainly a crucial part of his development. And that's, that's, and that's what led to his doubles partnership in the early years with Jim Courier. Yeah. And do you, yeah. You talk a lot in the book about the Courier almost being sort of a mentor, although they're about the same age, just kind of showing him the ropes in Florida and having a lot more experience and knowing the other guys better. But, but this doubles partnership, do you have any recollection of that? What it was like? I mean, think about these two guys playing on the doubles court together. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I didn't see them play much, but it was it, it it was awesome, and it couldn't last too long. And I think they both had singles. Courier explained too, and they had the singles became their priorities as they were getting better. They had, they dropped the partnership, but it was it's it's pretty exciting looking back on it to think what they might have been able to do with Courier's returns in San Francisco and Volley. They could have been quite a formidable team had they chose chosen to go on with the partnership. But he referred to they and Courier. Wore the backed it up that Curry was sort of a rather than a mentor, a big brother is how they referred to him. Yeah. And even though you know you're basically the same age, that's it's it's so interesting. And then he explains how uh, a few years later, I mean, you're talking about that period leading up to the '90 U.S. Open and before those those tough first couple of years as a pro '88, '89. But by the time that '93 came along, and we'll get to more of that later, I guess you know. Then, it, then Absolutely. it got tricky because they're one and two in the world, and how do how do you sustain that kind of a friendship and calling each other and checking in on each other all the time when you're going after the same prestigious prizes? It wasn't easy, but they they navigated it well. Both of them did. Let's let's dig into that a little bit. How would you say that the public perceived that? Because the public can be critical. Uh, I think back in those days in America, we expected a lot of our, you know, future champions, and you want to see these guys behave professionally. And f- from the from the way it sounds, it sounds like they handle it as best as they possibly could. They kind of dialed down their friendship a little bit and and really focused in on the tennis goals. It sounds like what more could you ask for from two top pros? Absolutely, the respect never never went away. But I think Sampras particularly felt like you had to have a certain distance at that stage when you're. <laughs> you're vying for the number one ranking in the world. And, you know, Sampras is taking that ranking away from Courier because that, that, that was, that was a fierce battle they were waging. And Jim had really, although Pete won the U S open and got on the board sooner than Jim, Pete went in the U S open in 90 Courier went on to win a couple of French and a couple of Australian in this period from 91 up to the 93 Wimbledon. So he had four majors and Pete had only the one when they, by the time they stepped on the court for the Wimbledon final in 93. So Inevitably, that was going to create some strain between two you know, prideful rivals. Yeah. But I, I, there was never any. It was not bitter, bitter, and there was nothing acrimonious about it. There just was an, an inevitable distance. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk 1990. We're about to experience the 30-year anniversary of Sampras winning and becoming the youngest men's singles champion in New York in history. Um, he was a very talented player highly thought of in many ways but not many people saw him doing what he was going to later do during that fortnight i mean the players he beat to win that title mooster lendl McEnroe, who was revitalized and in great form in that semifinal, and then of course agassi i mean what do you remember about this year and how amazing was it to see well, he came in. Sampras came in, Chris, seated 12th. So, you, so obviously, you're not at 12 in the world without having made a lot of progress over the previous couple of years. But nobody uh, was thinking of him winning the title. He said to me for the book that he would have been happy, you know, with a round of 16 quarters. He, he was hoping for a second week and a decent showing. That was the last thing he thought about was winning the tournament. And frankly, nobody else was really talking about him as even a, as even a really serious outside candidate. Uh, you know, it was a long shot. Yeah. But you alluded to the group of people he beat. The first three rounds were pretty smooth, and then came Mooster, and Mooster was seated six places above him at six. And tough, uh, indefatigable left-hander from Austria, and cocky in his own way, and better on clay, but still a really tough customer. And Sampras came out of that after nearly going down two sets to love. He was a couple of points away from being down two sets, came back and won it in four, and and played well. Uh, but then, then the Lendl match was the key to the whole thing in the quarters. Yvonne had been in eight straight, a record, eight straight U.S. Open finals. Yes. 
So he w- and he was definitely maybe declining a bit over the course of the '90s season, but still the Open had been his home, and he had built that deck of turf two court right at, at his own home in Greenwich, yep. you know, to practice there. And he just loved playing the Open, and obviously had an enormous confidence after winning three titles and reaching five other finals in those previous eight years. And Sampras won, but Pete played beautifully the first two sets to go up two sets of love before Lendl took it into a fifth. And I, I remember thinking at the time watching it that, I mean, you, you would have put your money on Lendl going into the fifth because his fitness and his experience and his, his such a wily competitor and everything was going his way. But Sampras played a great fifth set and uh, won at 6-2 in the fifth. And it was and that one really propelled him to the title because now he had taken he taken his game up a clearly up a level from where it had been been against Mooster, and then then he goes out against McEnroe and plays even better in the four set semifinal. And you know John, of course, has won the Open four times, and as you said, he was revitalized and he was playing very well that tournament. And he thought coming in that he was going to be able to win that match, even though he'd lost to Sampras in Canada a few weeks earlier. Yes. So. Now we go from five sets over Lendl to four sets over McEnroe, and then he absolutely peaked against Agassi. And Agassi had been in the uh, was the big favorite because he'd been in the semis the previous couple of years. He'd been in the finals of the French earlier in the year, and he just was overdue, it seemed, to win his first major, and this was the logical place. And he'd come off a great performance in the semis against Becker, played beautifully to beat Becker in the four-set semi, but Sampras beat him four, three, and two, and he said to me in the book that he'd, he'd never played that well in his life. He couldn't really even explain it. He said he'd never even played that well in practice. He just got in the zone and really hit Agassi right off that court. Yeah. And you could see the look in Agassi's eyes. Mary Carrillo described that doing the commentary and how how bewildered he was and perplexed and and almost frightened of what was being thrown at him. So that that was just remarkable what Sampras did round after round, getting better and better with each round, and playing an almost unconsciously brilliant, uh, uh, unconsciously brilliant tennis in that final round. Never questioned himself, and it was it was quite a way to win your first major at 19 years and 28 days old, the youngest ever man to win that U.S. Open title. Yeah, that that is pretty remarkable, and. I think you hit on a key topic, a theme that gets revisited in your book, which is how Sampras is able to summon this very best tennis of from himself. Um, he had it in him, something something about him in big moments, and this is first of so many where he's able to play either in, come out of a tough match like the one you mentioned in Lendl, where he you know he dials up and uses his his mental fortitude, or the type of tennis where he's able to just pull away from players just to. He's so dominant and so crisp in every element of his game. He's such an awesome big match player, and I guess I should let you explain a little bit of that. Um, you know, already at 19, you're seeing signs that um, this is who he is. Yes, I, I think so. I think so, and I think that he had to grow into it. He was so young, and so there were there was he had some emotional growth that he needed to do. There were there were things he 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 had no idea what what it was going to be like to to um, be in the position of being suddenly being a celebrity and going on all the talk shows the next morning. But what was not an accident and what I think he realized over time, even though the next couple of years he didn't win a major was he knew he had this in him. He knew that was not an accidental run through a fortnight, not when you beat that many uh, great players and not when you raise your game, you know, decidedly round by round down the stretch and peak to beat Agassi in the final that easily. But obviously it was a difficult couple of years after that only because he had to live up to it and he was still, he had some injuries at some, niggling injuries that hurt him at times and it, it wasn't easy to live up to that. But I think in the back of his mind he always knew that he was made for the big occasions and he'd proven that against Agassi. Even if he was the one with nothing to lose, uh, we've seen a lot of times Chris guys go out and do that and maybe they're they're incredible for a set or two and then it suddenly hits them. Some, something dawns on them uh, they suddenly become exceedingly conscious of what they're doing and they might choke or their game drops a level and an opportunity gets away from them, but not Sampras in 90. And that did set the tone in many ways for the rest of his career as for Pete Sampras becoming one of the great big occasion players, if not the greatest big occasion player we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And yet, as you just alluded to, it wasn't so simple for him. He didn't win another slam for, I think, 
three, nearly three years, and correct me if I'm wrong, of course, as we go through this, but um, can you tell me where he was in 90 with regard to coaching and then when Tim Gullickson does enter his life and start to play a role? Yeah, he had a guy named Joe Brandy that he found at the Voluntary Academy, and, uh, and Brandy was working with him at the 90 Open, and then it was Tim came along really for 92. They set it up, I guess, at the end of 91. Tom Gullickson was the one who recommended it because he'd gone down to meet with Tim, with uh, Pete, and he said, you know what, I've got these um, commitments to the USTA, and but I have a guy that looks like me and talks like me, and uh, <laughs> and he recommended Tim, and that so that partnership started in '92, and um, that was very important too. Leading into '93, first was obviously the growing pains inevitable that any 19-year-old would have after winning the U.S. Open, and uh, uh, sort of arriving ahead of schedule. And in '91, he he played well enough and had a great summer, but then Courier beat him in the quarters of the Open, and Sampras felt as if he had. He just felt too much pressure. It was a big burden in his mind at that time defending, which is a great contrast to later years. But Gullickson came along, and the, the, the groundwork was laid in 92 because he made the semis of Wimbledon and beat the defending champion Steak before losing to Ivanisevic, and then it probably should have won the Open but lost that final to Edberg, which he always has described as, as the sort of the, the transformational moment in his career yes. when he realized how much he hated losing and it really bugged him that he felt like he hadn't reached back with, with everything that he had competitively and that he thought in a way that he had let go. He didn't just surrender or quit, but he felt like he hadn't given it the full commitment, the full fight, yeah. and that really bugged him. So it was the combination of Gullickson sort of coming in and and making some adjustments with Pete on his backhand side, improving his backhand return, just generally making a, really making his game that much more sound that set the stage for the great 93. Okay. And uh, and so then he finally got that second major, and he, as he describes in the book, when he won Wimbledon 93, well, first of all, he beat Agassi again in the quarters. Agassi was the defending champion, five-set quarter, and then he beats Boris Becker, the, you know, and Boris, of course, had won three titles between 85 and 89, and he knocks up Boris in the semis and then plays Curry in the final. Probably the biggest match of his career in a lot of ways because he really needed that title at this stage now he's he's number one in the world he'd taken the number one ranking away from courier and he just it, it was it, it, the time had come for him to start picking up again and winning majors and start making it a habit and and he won that match but he said he'd never really been more nervous before any probably any match in his entire career, he really wanted that one badly. And it, Courier put up a terrific fight on the grass, considering that he was not a natural grass court player. And right. it was a hard-fought four-set match. And Pete won the first couple of sets and breakers, and then lost the third and came back and beat him in four. And that changed everything. That really set him on on his path through the next five six years of sort of comfortably residing at the top of the tennis yeah, world and just, feeling like he was the best and he belonged there and there were no longer any doubts and that was that was a really crucial match in the career of Pete Sampras. I'm going to ask you to backtrack and backpedal just a tiny bit to to 92 in the match you mentioned against Edberg which was another crucial match. Um you saw the match and did did you see it the way that Sampras saw it would you have been as hard on him as he was as hard on, on himself and you know in retrospect, how crucial was it and how really refreshing was it to see a champion like Sampras take a loss like that so hard in a period where he was now two years past his first major title, still hadn't won another? I mean, this was really an important segment for him, wasn't it? It was. I think he was a little hard on himself. I mean, you probably saw that I got some quotes from Edberg about that, too, who understood. But here are two guys that are both tired for different reasons. Edberg had had a string of five-set matches leading up to the final Pete had had some tough battles, including a tough four-setter with Curry the day before, where at the end he was not feeling well, and you could see him kind of crouch, hunched over, and he had to go on IV after the match. He really was not feeling great, and he didn't have a great night's sleep, and he kind of puts all that aside in the way that he castigates himself for what happened in that final, but he won the first set against Edberg, lost the next one, and then served for the third set, and it was so unusual for him not to serve out a set, and he didn't close him there, and he lost that set in a tiebreak. And then the fourth was kind of routine. But how often have we seen that, Chris? That can happen in a lot of best-of-five-set matches where you, the third set is pivotal at one set all. You lose it, and 
the guy who's got in the driver's seat now and is not feeling the fatigue as much as he had been. And that's how Edberg described it. But Pete just felt like he, he had not. And, and obviously only he can know how hard he fought him. But it didn't look to me like it was some kind of a terrible surrender or that he'd thrown in the towel. He just looked a little down, which I think was understandable given that he should have won the third set. And had he won the third, I, I firmly believe he would have, would have won the match. Yeah, but, mean, it, but, it, but all I can say, Chris, is it was probably a good thing that he was so hard on himself because I think that's what led to all of the, uh, the, the many glowing triumphs in the years ahead. And that's what changed his mindset and made him feel like, okay, every time I get there in a major final now, I'm going to fight as ferociously as I can. Let the chips fall where they may, but I'm not going to leave any stone un- unturned in the pursuit of victory. Mm-hmm. Another thing I find funny is that Andre Agassi actually won Wimbledon before Pete Sampras. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not something. <laughs> that's now, the crazy. funny part about that is that Andre Agassi was playing his semifinal against John McEnroe on the center court while Pete Sampras simultaneously was facing Goran Ivanisevic on court one in the other semi because rain had put the tournament behind schedule and they had to be sure to get both these matches in so they could play the final as planned on Sunday. And and Sampras, uh, that that one, you know, was kind of similar to Edberg. You know, he he'd, he... He had achieved won the first set and eventually lost it. Didn't play a very good fourth set. Got a little down on himself there too, uh, which was maybe even more understandable because even this, which could be demoralizing when that big left-handed serve of his, the biggest weapon in the game. And, sure. And uh, but but had Sampras been able to beat Ivanisevic, he would have played Agassi in that 92 final, and I don't think Andre would have won that Wimbledon. That's that's my feeling that Sampras could have gotten there. He would have been much more comfortable against Agassi than he was against Ivanisevic. Yeah, and um, 93 Wimbledon, Andre still had a winning record against Pete, if I'm not mistaken, and you yeah. wrote that in many... Very early in the rivalry. Very yeah. early, yeah, absolutely. And you wrote that in many yeah, ways... Like... Oh, go ahead, sorry. No, no, go ahead, Chris, go, go. Um, the, the Agassi, what did he lead Sampras by? Something like 2-1 or some. Yeah, they might have been 4-3. It was very, very early on, and so it wasn't that significant. But, yeah, because at that stage, you think about it, you know, Sampras has won the 90 Open, and then he had some, you know, he was working his way back up in 91-2, and but but, uh, Andre Andre had really started peaking sooner than him, and so day in, day out, maybe he was the better bet at that stage. But, yeah, he he had the slight lead, And, and the rivalry stayed pretty close, really, right through the 95 Open, and then Sampras... Eventually won the series twenty to fourteen, but yeah, you're right, and that was that was that was a fascinating match that ninety three Wimbledon quarter because uh, Sampras it was it was a, such a cerebral performance from him. He was slicing and dicing Agassi and chipping away off his backhand, not going for too much off the forehand. Really mixed up his game well, and Agassi was kind of befuddled for two sets and lost them two and two. But he comes back and wins the next two sets and eventually Sampras won six four in the fifth. That was that was a pretty critical match as well because Sampras had an ailing shoulder and things improved after that and then he really played extremely well against Becker and played a fine final against Courier and the title belonged to him. You wrote that the the Pete and Andre matchup in that Wimbledon quarterfinal was one of the most fascinating contests of their head to head series and what was it about that one that really intrigued you so much besides what well, I was what mentioned? I yeah, that was mainly it. it was the, that he didn't often play him the way he did that day. Where it, I, I wouldn't say it was identical to Arthur Ashe, Jimmy Connors, but Arthur had come up with a recipe of not going for too much pace and throwing in a lot of chips and dinks and lobs to to throw off Jimmy Connors' rhythm in that '75 Wimbledon final, and it was always regarded as one of the great cerebral performances. And I thought this one, in some ways, resembled the Ash Connors match, because I think Agassi was very surprised that Pete was not trying to blow him off the court when on, in baseline exchanges on Agassi's serve, but he was fencing with him, probing, throwing in all these soft chips, and it definitely got to Agassi, who eventually found his range and played really well in the third and fourth, but I, I thought it was, it was unlike any other Sam throughout their careers. And then he rides that through the final. What are your, what were your thoughts on the '93 Wimbledon final with Courier? Because that's a pretty important one for Pete. That was kind of the one that opened the floodgates. 
Yeah, I, again, I think he, he was very nervous. He didn't sleep very well the night before. He really wanted that title. It wasn't so much just Jim. But he also knew that Jim was dangerous, grass courts or not, and that Jim had more experience at this stage, having won a, a couple of French and a couple of uh, Australians. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, he, this period from 91 to 3, that's when he was winning all these titles. And, you know, that was after Peter won the 90 Open. So Curry was very experienced on big stages. And it come off a nice win over Edberg in the semis. Surprised a lot of people by beating Edberg in the semis. So he was kind of on a roll, and he'd just been, he'd won the Australian at the start of that year and been in the finals of the French and nearly won that for a third year in a row before Bergera beat him. So Courier was a tough customer, and Sampras knew it, but above all, he just wanted to be sure that he played his best tennis. And and it was hard, and Jim mixed things up and served and volleyed some, and and. and he uh, he played a very smart match, very cagey match. So he was pretty hard to break in those first couple of sets. You know, they were on serve right through those first two sets, and it was the tie breaks that were critical for Sampras. And then Courier managed to break Sampras twice in that third set, and so he turned it into a quite a battle, a strenuous battle on a very hot day on center court. And then, but Sampras got that break in the fourth and protected it and. Uh, it, it was it was a very high quality match, and Courier felt like he played about as well as he possibly could on a grass court, and just lost to somebody that was in another league on that surface. And it was it was great effort for Courier to even take the set, but he really made Sampras work very very hard that day, because Jim uh, you know that big inside out forehand and a underrated serve, so you know it was it was not easy to break him in those conditions with the grass being faster in those days. How much did Pete serve and volley back in those days, and then how much was he serving and volleying at the end of his career? Well, the change, I talk about that in the book a lot, the change, on the grass he was serving and volleying a lot, almost every first and second, every first serve, and, and just about all of his second serves too on the grass, but then he'd get into the hard court season, and he would stay back quite a bit on his second serve on the hard courts. By 97 and certainly 98, but a certain stage of 97, straight on through his career, then he became, his second serve just got bigger and bigger in those years, and and he wouldn't hang back, hardly ever would stay back behind his second serve. Wow. And then the more he did that, I think he felt like the, the commitment he made to serving and volleying almost exclus- ex- exclusively made uh, strengthened his volley. He, he just became that much sounder on the volley, that much better in the forecourt. But at this time, on the grass, fast grass, Wimbledon, sure, he would do it pretty much every first and second serve. The, 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 the change would come when he got onto the hard courts. Mm. I mean, can, can you talk briefly about Sampras as an athlete? Because we hear like so much about him as a, as a server, him as a competitor, as a clutch player. But the fact that he was so quick, quicker than most, that I think almost everybody gives him credit for, and such a great leaper, this, this guy was really athletically maybe one of the best that we've ever seen no doubt about it and you know lendl lendl talked a lot about that he couldn't believe it and uh, sampras could dunk the basketball and uh, the way he could just jump up leap up and hit those overheads in a way that nobody else i mean obviously he was known for that leaping overhead overhead and mackinaw would sometimes wonder why didn't more guys do it but they weren't the athlete that pete was and Mary Carrillo talks a lot about that in the book, that he's one of, one of the great athletes. She's seen Billie Jean lauds him for that. And yes, it, the, the speed was deceptive because he was a relatively big guy, 6'1", and, and yet he moved beautifully and, that w- and gracefully. And that was not maybe talked about enough. And that was evidence, that was showcased from that 90 open straight on through. But he, he was an extraordinary athlete. And so many people that I interviewed in the book alluded to that. Yeah. And in terms of that 93 Wimbledon, which is just his second major title, right? That's right. And that then, was the second. And then he's ready to roll, and he's going to, for the, for the first and only time in his career, he's going to reel off three more, take him through the 94 Australian Open. How good was his form then, does, and the, how good does, how does that form compare to maybe other peak Pete Sampras periods? which well, there, I think there are so was, many. Yeah, I think he was a better player when you get into, say, nine, 95 on. I think he he got better and better. And I think I think the Sampras of 97, the kind of tennis he was playing then and this tennis he was playing in the summer of 99, there were stages where he was a be- became a better player, but 
this period that you're describing was one of his most successful and productive periods because he went on to win that 93 U.S. Open for his second major in a row. Now he was really comfortable in that setting, and he had a second Open and now a second major in a row, and then he goes and wins the 94 Australian. And although he didn't win the French and get four in a row, and Courier beat him in Paris, he he came right back and won Wimbledon. So he'd won eight titles the first half of 94. So it was really, he was blazing. And then unfortunately, he got tendonitis in his ankle. That kind of disrupted the second half of his 94 campaign and really took away almost any chance he had to win to defend his U.S. Open title because he didn't play any of the hardcore tournaments over the summer. He'd gotten hurt in a Davis Cup match against Krychek. So that really kind of, it, that definitely stalled and disrupted him to a degree. He still won the year-end championships and finished number one, but I think 94 would have been an even greater year. But the player, I think Sampras, the player, and with the additional serving and volleying that he did later on, and uh, I would say he, he was a better player later on, but the period you're referring to was one of the most consistent stretches of excellence that he had. Mm. And speaking of that serving and volleying, where do you think he ranks among you know some of the top all-time serving volleyers? Is, is, is he is he right there at the top? Yeah, it's hard to it's it's it, 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 it's 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 hard to say. I mean, because we we he's he's there's such a good argument can be made that he's the, the best server the game has ever seen. If you package his first with his second, yes. And everybody, we always want to talk about the second serve, and we can do that later. But I. I think it was the combination of the two, the the notion that he had almost two first serves, and uh, but but there, the, he also then, especially then when he increased the serving and volleying, he became a, a better and better volleyer. Was he as good as Edberg or Rafter or some of the others? Maybe not quite. I think you could you could argue it, but boy, he was close enough. And my John Mackin was saying that in the book that you know he was. Was he the best volleyer of all time? Probably not, but he was very underrated. And I, I think that was a, a, a crucial part of his game because, again, the athleticism, the movement, the anticipation at the net was so good. Yeah. And then the technique it just got sounder and sounder. And that backhand volley was natural, and he, he developed a great low forehand volley, and he could sometimes flick that forehand volley when he was on the stretch. Uh, he, could, he could do some amazing things at the net, not to mention – you didn't dare try to lob him because the overhead may have been possibly the best overhead we've ever seen. So to to just classify him as a servant volleyer, he, he, obviously you'd put him, you have to put him right up there with the others, but it was a different kind of, he, some of the other servant volleyers, like a rafter, like an Edberg, some of them didn't serve nearly that big. So it was sort of more designed to, to set up the volley, a well-placed serve, but expecting to hit a volley. He didn't always expect to hit a volley, but his his play in that in the forecourt his volleying definitely improved significantly over the years and he became a great volleyer it's ah, great and and i'm gonna just really hit you with one more question then we can talk a little bit about where what's up with the book when it's coming out where people can get it and so on and so forth and then we're going to cut it and come back for part two where we kind of dive into sampras you know sort of 94 and on and then work into the the end of his career and have a little bit more legacy talk so my last question is about 93 U.S. Open. He's just in the middle of this stretch where he wins three consecutive majors for the first time. In the quarterfinals, he runs up against Chang, who we spoke about earlier. He's 2-6 and six against Chang at the time. There's a funny story in your book about, uh, uh, we could talk about this briefly, with the, with the ragu sauce and, and Michael Chang's mom, but that's, <laughs> that made me laugh yeah. so hard. But you can talk <laughs> about that. But, but also how important was this match, and, and he was really able to dominate Michael Chang at, at that match and pretty much dominate him for the rest of their rivalry. All right, let's start quickly with Ragu, ragu and, then, I get, I love then, the and ragu. then we'll travel to the 93 Open. But I was glad you liked that story so much. I saw that you did a tweet on it, but... Really, that was back in their junior days. They're practicing a lot together. They're out in California. He goes back to have lunch with the Changs, and and Michael describes how his mother would make this really nice sauce. You know, she'd have a meat sauce with all kinds of things and all fresh and beautifully made. And and so she offered Pete that that sauce and 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 told him what she'd made. And and he said, well, Mrs. Chang, if it's all the same. Is it possible I could just get some plain ragu sauce? And she's like, Pete, but you don't understand. This is how it's got this and that, and it's fresh, and it's, oh, it's so good. And he says, Mrs. Chang, I, I understand, and I really appreciate it, but 
is it all right if I just can have some ragu? And, and Michael loved that story. And the story <laughs> is symbolic because it just was somebody that knew. And to this day, Pete said, to this day, he, he likes the same types of foods that he always did. And he's, he was set in his ways. He knew what he wanted. He kept things simple. And rather than who's to say that he wouldn't have loved the sauce that she'd made, but he knew he loved the ragu and he knew that that was his routine and he wanted to stick with it. So yeah. that's, that's that story. And Chang said, told this story in a very laudatory way for sort of the kind of man that Sampras is and the principles and the way he sticks to his convictions. Now let's go to the 93 open. Yes. You described it well, Chris. He's they're in the quarters and Michael's six and two against him at that stage. He'd at one time been five and zero. Oh. So you know this is a this is kind of a this is a, a critical match uh, as he's on his way to trying to win his second U.S. Open and they play it under the lights and Chang won that first set and eventually Sampras came back at, in, to win the second in a tie because really hard fought couple of first the first two sets were very tough very physical and Chang was inspired and he was actually attacking Pete's second serve because again at that time. On the hard, Pete was not coming in behind the second serve that much. He wouldn't have played Chang that as uh, it would have changed by even the '96 okay. U.S. Open final, and certainly beyond that. But in any case, he wins that second set, and then the last two were one and one. It was a breathtaking display from Sampras, and he and so he won the last two one and one. And it was just he was he was just astonishing those last couple of sets. Every shot in the book, the serving, the athleticism, the 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 outright winners who was hitting from every part of the court and of course the you know a couple with with a lot of aces and stretch volleys it was all there and he just overwhelmed Chang and he said he said he thought it was really the turning point in the rivalry you know he he'd started to he'd had a couple of wins over him but really from that point on he felt like that sort of planted something in Michael's mind about you know now things had changed and maybe Pete's better than I am it was it was a pivotal and critical match and it carried Sampras right on past Volkov and Peeling to win the title but the Chang match was in essence a final in the quarterfinals and it was a, a great victory for him and one of lasting importance yeah amazing um, so tell me greatness revisited I have a copy right in front of me and it's beautiful nice hardcover uh, um, the public how are they going to get this book and when are they going to get it well, it's officially released. Some, uh, the, the, um, some of them could get it in their bookstores. Obviously, there's always Amazon, with, mm -hmm. and it will be available the 1st of September is the official release, release date. So we're kind of closing in on, on that. It's not, not too far off. So it's good timing because it coincides with the 90 U.S. Open, the celebration of him becoming the youngest champion over, uh, ever back in 1990. Absolutely. And that was the idea all along to have the book come out in the anniversary year. Yeah. And so, right as the right as the open is sort of get, get is swinging into into motion there and getting, we're in the first couple of days. The book will be available. It's perfect. Um, I just get a little bit of a feeling of sadness because I picture this book having its own booth at the U.S. Open, a crowded U.S. Open, day two, September first, I think would be, and just people, you know, browsing through it and buying it. But it's not going to be that way this year, is it? No, sadly not. So I just would urge, you know, your listeners, I, I, those that are interested and, and those that admired Pete Sampras immensely, and there are many people that fit that category, that they, they should order it. I think they'll enjoy it mainly because of his, his uh, wonderful recollections of what he did over the years and then in turn what so many others had to say about him. Yep. And in, in depth and with the passage of time, they all have the perspective to really laud Pete Sampras the way he should be lauded. And I'll also add, those who are not totally familiar with the greatness of Sampras, with the, that era of tennis, you know, the players that he came up against, the Ivanisevich, Agassi, Courier, even back further to Lendl, McEnroe, and there's so much in there. I mean, how many hours did you spend talking with, with Pete and with everybody about this book? I mean, it must have been over 100 hours. Probably was altogether. I suppose it was. I didn't really totally keep track because I kept chipping away at it. In the case of, of Sampras, I would, you know, I started doing the interviews with him in November of 18, and then we did a couple of long ones then, a couple more long ones in December. I let a few months go by. I came back. We did some more long ones in April of 19, and it kept going like that. In the meantime, I was gathering this. 
I was getting all of the others. And it, it would depend how long I might go with a Courier or a Chang or an Ivanisevich. Some were longer than others, but uh, I have to say, I, I didn't track the time, but you mm -hmm. may well be right. But it, it went so fast. It was so much fun to to hear what they had to say. Yeah, but you're you're probably pretty pretty good at getting getting what you want out of the interviews, so you can keep them short. In some cases, yes. In some cases, from the rivals, yes. I didn't. I wasn't on that long with Rafter, but he had a lot of interesting things to say. And and uh, same with Ed Berg. Some you know, these guys could get right to the point. But then because Courier had this fa interesting history with Pete, and they were such friends, and they remain so to this day. Yeah. He had a he had a lot to say. We had a nice lengthy session and. Same with Chang, and Chang was terrific. That's actually one of the best interviews I've, I've ever had with Chang. Mm. And he started it off by saying, "I don't know, Steve. I don't know why you're interviewing me because I have nothing nice to say about Pete Sampras." <laughs> and funny. I had the reaction you did. I broke up laughing. I said, "Michael, you're not going to get away with that." Yeah. I, can, it, it, I said, "That's totally insincere," or something like that. Yeah. And he laughed, and then he proceeded to. I thought he. I thought what he had to say was terrific. <laughs> yeah, from a personal standpoint. Steve, it must be immensely rewarding to have this book out. Um, this is your second book, right? And, and it's kind of a passion play. Sampras is an athlete that you've really had a lot of respect for. So, I mean, this is, uh, this is a nice moment for you, right? Yeah, very gratifying. And, and I, was, I was very happy that he was so accommodating himself and that so many others were, were – uh, I was able to reach so many others and kind of do do the book on my terms. And, yes, it, it was gratifying because – of all the guys I've watched in the in these 50 years, go back to to the 60s. I, I just he had some qualities that I saw in no one else. Mm -hmm. So it it was it it was kind of a labor of love in that respect. Great, Pete Sampras, greatness revisited. Forward by Chris Everett, written by Steve Flink. September 1st, you guys go out and get it. And Steve, we're going to talk more about Pete Sampras maybe in a week or two and kind of wrap this one up before the U.S. Open. So I look forward to that as well. And thank you for your time and congrats on the book. Chris, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. We'll talk soon. This edition of the Lucky Let Cord podcast is a wrap. Special thanks, of course, to Steve Flink. And, of course, you guys look out for that book on September 1st. We're all locked down at home right now, so you might as well get on your Amazon and pick up a copy. I uh, want to remind you guys you can find Tennis Now on social at facebook.com slash tennis now. Also on Twitter at tennis underscore now. And, of course, you can find this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Go to Apple Podcasts, Google Lucky Let Cord Podcast, and voila. You will be there. Of course, we appreciate it. Your, we appreciate your likes, reviews, rates, and subscribes. So if you can do that, it would mean a lot to us. And stay tuned for the next episode. We'll have Steve Link back in a, a couple weeks to kind of finalize this conversation about the great Pete Sampras. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis. See you next time.